0: feels like it's been a long time since I've seen you guys, you know. Uh, Went to summer camp for a little bit, uh, went on vacation, thank you, because I know you provide for that too. And I think I have the spiritual gift of rest, so um, when I shut it off, I know how to shut it off. So I'm going to teach a course on how to shut it off. Uh, The problem is, you know that adage, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. I'm, I'm concerned that it applies to minds too. So this might not be very sharp today because I'm still on vacation, although I'm here. Um, anyway, I, I just, so uh, in your Bibles in Romans chapter three, verse 21 through verse 31, uh, theologians have called it uh, the chief point, the very center of the gospel. Some, some have said it's the most important passage in the Word, and, I'll, and this is my opinion, it, and I wrote it in my Bible a long time ago. I've changed Bibles several times to try to get on the right translation for everybody, but I've got this old interna- new international version, and it's worn out and everything else, and I wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, the most concise depiction of the good news in human history. If I had to die and leave, or, or had to leave where I live, I would tear out that section with me. Because it is the story of the good news of the gospel. And so we are in this powerful place. One of two paragraphs that encompass that thought, verses 21 through 31. I want to review just so that what I say to you this morning uh, will have a context. And I'm not going to take the time to read it, verses 21 through 26. But that is the essence of of good news. It is, watch this, and you better react because this is the best thing I ever heard. God's righteousness is available to sinners, amen? I mean, I suppose I could just stop there. We go home, praising God, and have a great Sunday because that is a mind-blowing concept that the righteousness of God is available to losers like us. Like he has every right because he's a holy God to exclude us, to judge us, to punish us. But God in his love and compassion and his mercy and his grace makes his righteousness available to sinners. That's what verse 21 says right off the bat. And it's not by, good news, doing things. It's not by law, it's not by effort, it's not trying to be something or trying not to be something. It's based on the finished work of Jesus, and it's an exclusive only one way um, to that hope. We are are sinners, and this is a review from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, who are incapable of dealing with our own disease. The pervasiveness of sin, the, 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 the brokenness of the human heart, the inclination, the bent to evil is so messed us up. There isn't anyone who's ever lived who could make the right adjustments at the right proper time to sort out his problem with God. We are all so desperately wicked. Now, that's, that sounds like a bad bummer way to start a Sunday morning. But I'm just telling you, if you don't get that, every bit of good that I tell you about the good news of Jesus, you're not going to celebrate that much. Because after all, it might be just a little bit of gravy, but it isn't the story. We believe that the story is God comes after sinners and grants them what they can't get any other way, any other place, and that is his righteousness. And so salvation and forgiveness is a gift. It isn't earned. It comes by grace from God to us. And it is not just possible. Salvation is certain. And it's ours because of the finished work of Christ. Right? And so God does this amazing thing. God satisfies himself. He satisfies his own standard on our behalf. God dies for God. God says, if you, if you sin, I've got to judge you because I'm a holy God. So what do we do? The only thing we can do is die. But God says, I'll die for you and you go free. And so God actually satisfied his own standard for, for us. And, and Paul tells us, therefore, he's just because there's not one single sin, not any sin of the past, not any sin of the present, not any sin in the future that God in Christ on the cross hasn't perfectly and completely punished. So he's just. God isn't changing the rules. He's not forgetting the standard. He's holding a, a holy, perfect, right line on sin, and he pours it out on Jesus. And he says, Paul says, he's the justifier. He works in our lives to such a degree it could be said as if we've never sinned. Okay, I'm going to say that again because you weren't, you weren't listening. He works in our life to such a degree that it could be said as if we've never sinned. Amen. No blight, no blemish. No condemnation, no judgment. He's not gonna wake up on the wrong side of the bed and and go, wait a minute, I changed the rules. You're worse than I thought. You get judgment in hell forever. What God did in Jesus, on Jesus, for us, on our behalf, frees us from work and effort, and we get what we don't deserve, and we get what we can't get anywhere else. We get perfect holiness. That's an amazing story, right, church? Church? An amazing story. That's why you sing songs. That's why you come to this place. Is because it's unbelievable. Your little brain molecules should be blowing up in your head because that's an unbelievable truth that God gives righteousness to sinners like us. Okay, so that's the first most powerful paragraph in all the world. Good enough. We can all die happy people, so good news. This second paragraph is kind of combined to make his thought, and I'm going to give it a weird title, and you've got to hang in there. I'm calling it The Consequence to the gospel. And if you're a thinking person, you listen to that word, and you go, consequence, that's a negative word. How can you put anything negative with the gospel? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, well, let me, let me explain. The gospel saves us. As, as mind-blowing and amazing as God's love to save sinners, it also confronts us. And not just once, by the way, not in your life somewhere 20 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago, when you came to the end of yourself and said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That's not the only confrontation that the gospel has in your life. The gospel, until you meet Jesus, confronts you because you have this body of flesh. And let me put another word on it. If I just want to weigh you down, I I say it's the devastation of the gospel because here's what the gospel promises to do. It promises to to beat up all the ways in which the natural man's heart tries to offer himself to God apart from Jesus. you get it? And you might say, I trust in Christ alone, but it pops up. It always pops up. Somewhere in your life, something you wanna offer or something you wanna deny comes up in your life like you are the exception to the rule, that you have a right to your sin or that God needs to see how great of a person you are. And when that comes up, the gospel says, well, let me devastate that too. Because when we're all said and done, us having nothing but Jesus is the best thing we could ever have. Amen? And even though we experience it like loss, it's really the gift of God's grace that he will never, ever, ever compete with us. He won't have it. And so here we have in verses 27 through 31... I call it the consequences of the gospel. Let me read it, and I'll give you a, a very easy-to-manage three-point outline. God willing, will be done here in 25 minutes. So here's what Paul says. Again, this is after he's just presented the greatest news of the gospel ever. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's the outline. You ready? Ready? This is the consequence of the gospel. Number one, it crushes our pride. Number two, it crushes our options. And number three, it crushes our accusations. Okay, can you remember that? He crushes our pride, our options, and our accusations. Let's, Let's deal with the first one. Paul says, what then becomes of our boasting? Now, you would think, after Paul just finishes the greatest article ever written on how people are saved by faith alone through Christ alone, right, through grace, you would think that we'd be done. But the problem is, our tendency is to think we had something to do with it. Like somewhere in it, like at least, at least just a little bitty molecule, somewhere in here, I, I believed enough, I understood enough, I had the intellect enough, I tried enough, I was good enough. Somewhere in there, we all have that tendency. Now, I was uh, saved in 1981. Now, I was saved from a pastor's home, so my guess is that my brain had a whole bunch of stored, unused information. Okay, just by osmosis, I was in it, but I got saved, and when the lights came on, my personality is an extremist, so I said, dad, my dad was a kind of, he was a pastor recruiter of Bible college students, and I said, pick a college, I'm going to Bible college, if this is really true, if this is really true, and Jesus saves people, I want it, whatever it is, I want it, so dad kind of penciled out three or four colleges, and I just, I just darted one on a map, I never been there, didn't register, I just drove there. 1,500 miles away, and I walked in and registered. That's how it happened for me. And my first class was a theology class. And I went into the theology class just lit up like crazy Jesus freak on fire. And the, and the professor said something about me doing nothing in salvation, and it made me angry. You know what I'm saying? Like, I remember going, wait a minute. I get a piece of this guy. I, I could be, I was a great arguer. I might not have had any information, but I could argue. And so... He, he presented this sovereign God and, and God making all the moves towards sinful man and the only thing we could bring is our sin and what he brought we couldn't get. And I thought, wait a minute, I was there. I remember I believed. I remember I sorted it out. I remember I made the decision. I remember what I did and I remember how offended I was when he told me, mm-mm, mm-mm. And you might be sitting here today hearing about a good news that God authors for you and, and yet the human heart has a tendency to go, but I'm, I'm okay here, right? Like, I'm, I mean, that's good, isn't it? Like, God, you, you notice, right? Don't you see me here in this position? Don't you see me giving and serving and loving and being a good family guy? Don't you see this stuff? Isn't there some merit in this for us somewhere? And so Paul addresses that human tendency when he jumps right into verse 27 is, okay, what happens to your boasting now, church? We're getting done with this God-authored gospel. What do you do with boasting now? And boasting, we know, is the has uh, is root is pride. And and let me just paraphrase how God feels about pride. He hates it. He calls it an abomination. God will not compete with sinners. And he hates pride, and so any kind of pride thinks that thinks that anything we have or could do or could think or could be would somehow make this holy, unbelievably awesome God think that we were good or okay or worth something is an offense to him, okay? Um, James Montgomery Boyce suggests, he's a, a pastor, was a pastor. Uh, he suggests that pride is most evident not in what we think of ourselves and what we do necessarily or the or we have a list of things that we are committed to or a list of things we're not committed to he suggests that pride is most revealed in our religion because religion says that there is something i can do that god finds commendable or noteworthy right or lovable that that there is some religious effort some Things I don't do or things that I do do that make me superior to others who don't do them, therefore God owes me something. Make sense? And do you see what blasphemy that is when you talk about our life and and the gospel that for us to say, listen, I've got something to offer. Let me use an illustration you're probably familiar with. In, In Luke chapter 18, Jesus shares a story about this human tendency and he describes two different people. There's a Pharisee, religious leader, a guy who knows a lot of stuff, does a lot of stuff. And then there's this tax collector who's a a traitor, loser, um, bad, bad, okay? And they're both praying and Jesus lets us in on their prayer. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you. You made me. I thank you that I'm not like all these other evildoers. And he points at the tax collector. I think I'm not like that guy. The tax collector just can't even look up. He pounds his chest and says, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus uses those two people as an illustration to describe the the tax collector who has nothing to offer, he goes home receiving mercy. And the tax collector, or the, the Pharisee, is having to stand on his own two legs and he doesn't receive it. The human heart, based on behavior, based on life or lifestyle, always thinks that somehow God notices, recognizes, or appreciates it even as Christians. And that's what what the gospel does. It devastates your activities. Listen, churchgoer, listen up, okay? I don't care how much money you give to a church. I don't care how much you serve or, or if you're a missionary in Morocco. I don't care what you're doing. You stand only by God's good graces. You have nothing to offer. And if you slap yourself on your own back because of your hard work, then you're an offense to a holy God. You see, that's weird, isn't it? Good deeds can be sinful when you're all said and done with it because they're done for the wrong reasons. So let's be honest. You might be sitting here going, wait a minute, time out, time out. I, I think, I think I got you, Tim. I, I don't think I'm that kind of person. Well, if you are kind of holding out on this story, let me, let me bring you a little bit closer. Let me just ask you a question, and I'll, I, hopefully I can prove my point. What is on your I could never or I would never do it list? Everyone who's ever lived has it. Even the most vile criminal in the prison system has a list that says, I'll never do that. I'll never narc on my friends. I'll never do this. I'll never do that. Whatever is on your list of I would never do it. I'd never murder anybody. I'd never never molest anybody. Whatever that is, then I'm suggesting to you that you have an example of where you think you're better than others. Or you have an example of what you think is a standard that makes you acceptable to God. Get it? And the gospel crushes that kind of pride, and it gives us nothing to boast about in ourselves. It deals with, number one, morality. Clearly, we're talking about that. There are people who think, as long as my good pile is better than my bad pile, I'm, I'm good to go. If I do these things or don't do those things, you, if you've been here for the last several months, you can't say that because he's just spent, Paul has spent two and a half chapters telling us how sinful we are and how what a waste our life is, and there's nothing we can do to change that we all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that what he said? That's exactly what he said. So there isn't anything you can do to be good enough. But the human heart does this. The human heart builds little systems and little behavior roles that we expect God to notice and applaud us for. And you have to be honest about your own heart here. When... when This is where it shows itself. When bad things happen to good people, good people complain like they don't deserve it. Right? So God deals with our counterfeit gospel and he deals with our pride by telling us, stop, just stop. You can't be good enough, so stop. The gospel deals with one other thing. This is probably more prevalent for us in our culture and that is he deals with our feelings. Let me explain. Um, I don't think... Religious people, at least in our culture, in our day and age, in 2013, are necessarily that much more moral than the world. I mean, people in here sleep around just as much as the world. There are just as many divorces and lies and cheating as there are in the world. So somehow you're willing to go. Yeah, I hope, I'm glad God doesn't judge just based on morality because I don't have much to offer. But you would sit there and go. But don't doesn't God see how much I cry when they worship? I'm at least sincere, right? God, you know how I feel about you. I get really caught up in all that. I'm a very sensitive person. And God would look at your feelings and say, tough. Your feelings don't fix your problems either. I don't care how sincere you are. You're sincerely wrong. There's a confrontation the gospel has with our knowledge. There are people who think because they confess some verses or some creed or have some series of formalized like theology that somehow God notices and he likes it. Now, now, all those things you might sit there and go, well, that, make, that makes sense that God would not find our behavior or our feelings or our knowledge as admirable qualities compared to his holiness. But what about faith? Some of us would sit there and say, yeah, but I believe. That's, that's the thing God notices. He notices my faith. But, and this is a little tricky, so you've got to hang in here with me as I explain it. Um, I think most of our pride is revealed here, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. When it's all said and done, let's say we are in heaven now and someone asks you a question, why are you here and Aunt Betty is not here? Most of us would say, well, because I believed and she didn't. And I want you to know, as subtle as this is, that's not an accurate answer, okay? So let me read to you uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' explanation to this thought. And hang in here with me because it's, it's powerful, Okay, so listen to what he says. Faith is nothing but the instrument of our salvation. Nowhere in scripture will you find that you are justified because of our faith. Nowhere in scripture will you find that we are justified on account of our faith. The scripture never says that. The scripture says that we are justified by faith or through faith. Faith is nothing but the instrument or the channel by which this righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. It is not faith that saves us. What saves us is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. Yeah, good. It is the death of Christ upon Calvary's cross that saves us. It is the perfect life, his perfect life that saves us. It is his appearing on our behalf in the presence of God that saves us. It is God putting Christ's righteousness to our account that saves us. This is the righteousness that saves us. Faith is but the channel and the instrument by which his righteousness becomes mine. The righteousness is entirely Christ's. My faith is not my righteousness, and I must never define or think of faith as righteousness. Faith is nothing but that which links us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Do you get it, church? So you can put your good deeds aside and you can put your sincerity feelings aside, and you can, you can put all the, the, the uh, comparisons aside and the knowledge aside, and you can set aside what you think is your ability to believe something and trust completely and only and totally in Christ's righteousness applied to you. Amen? Amen. The first consequence of the gospel is that God faithfully, consistently, and eternally crushes any and every other offering we bring because Jesus Christ is the only offering, right? Here's the second thing, if you're taking notes. And that is that he, it, uh, the gospel consequences, it crushes our options. Look at verses 29 and 30 again. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. There is one God. He is everybody's God, both Gentile and Jew. And there's only one faith in order to know this God, okay? Fairly exclusive sounding. That's what Paul has said here. And by the way, this truth isn't popular, right? Jesus being the only way to God, as he declares to be, isn't a popular truth, right? There have been people who've suggested that there's a mountain. God's top of the mountain, a lot of roads and lots of sides of the mountain. All the roads lead to God. And all, all religions have equal or some value, right? See Oprah, okay? It isn't true. It isn't true. God in his gospel crushes that thought and all other options because it says there is only one way by which men must be saved. It says it's a narrow way and it's only through Christ as God draws sinners unto himself. It says that. There isn't many roads. God is not on the top of a mountain and you're not going to find yourself there on any other way. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Anything, listen, he's one God and he belongs to everybody. He's the God of the Jews and Gentiles, whether they believe it or not, whether they get it or not, he is their God. And all other, get this, and this is really interesting, all other options are really ways to get distance from this holy God, not proximity to God. It creates a man-centered righteousness, some kind of, I can do it on my own, which eliminates us, excludes us from God's grace, as long as you don't think you got a problem, you don't get the solution, and you're stuck. So if you are here believing in anything but Jesus today, I'm telling you there is a dead end sign in that path. And it dumps you off into hell forever, by the way. So someone has described this difference as the difference between a do religion and a done religion. Maybe you've heard this before. A a do religion is based on the notion that we have something to perform, something to do in order to please God, like church, like prayer, like mission, like like going to temple, like ten commandments, like sacrifice, like giving, right? Whatever that list might be. I have to do something. And even though at first glance all religions in the world seem different, like they look like they have different expressions and they look different, they're really fundamentally all the same because they're all do religions all Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and Jehovah Witness, they're all do religions. So everything except the gospel. The gospel is a done religion. Done. Finished. Finished, you don't have to bring it up again. Finished, it's not gonna be questioned. God's not gonna change his mind. Whatever standard God required, God met. It's over. Freedom, true freedom. Not like hope for freedom, true freedom now. Now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is done. It's as finished as a holy God on a cross can say it's finished, okay? Period. Nothing else to do. No performance. No bad days, good days. All finished. So, and by the way, people have charged that the gospel is too exclusive. Exclusive that it's offensive because it doesn't respect other ideas or other beliefs and that it somehow limits access to God. Nothing could be farther from the truth because if there's only one access to God and it's provided through Jesus, it's good news, right? If everything else leads to death forever and ever, and and why are we complaining that there's a way out through Christ? There's only one access and it's open, by the way, to everyone. To you, church people, to those of you who are religious, who are performing, it's open to the prostitute and the criminal and the drug addict, and it's, and it's open to every creed and every color and every age and every culture. It's open to losers and lost people and homeless people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is wide open if you come just as you are, declaring what he says to be true of you and receiving freely what he had finished. you understand? How is that exclusive? How is that narrow? How is that limiting if it's the only way? James Boyce said this, I love it, listen. He says, I can only think of one thing that could possibly turn you away from this gracious, embracing, all are welcome gospel. And that is that you do not want to go into the Father's house with all those other types of people. But if that is so, do not call Christianity narrowed or bigoted or mean or self-righteous or sectarian. It is you who are a sectarian. And Christianity is the only thing I know that can cleanse you of that blight. Only Jesus can give you grace. To place, your pride, to place your pride aside and step through the wide door of salvation as the rebellious sinner that you are. No one else will go through. Only sinners who have confessed their sin, turned from it, and believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Done gospel. So listen, if you're believing in what I said, if, if, if what rings in your heart is like, oh, my gosh, that's satisfaction. I love that. Then you're, you're in the done category. Therefore, you don't have to look over your shoulder. Ever, ever. You never have to wonder if your story is gonna catch up with you or somehow God is gonna, like I said before, wake up on the wrong side of the bed and change all the rules because he's tired of your act. You don't don't have to worry that maybe something you've done is too bad for him to forgive because a sinner, listen, you can't out-sin his grace, amen? You don't have to worry that if you've done enough, on the contrary. Now, I need you to listen to this. If you're sitting here today and you're a do person, if, you, if you're the kind of person who's been trusting in your behavior or your knowledge or your morality or whatever you might be trusting in, you're never going to be sure. You're never going to be sure that you've done enough. You're never going to be sure that God will ever love you. You'll never be sure of heaven. You're going to be forever worried about the fatal mistake you will make. You're never going get, to get there. You're going to be confused and perplexed about how your past does more saying truth about you than what Jesus has done contrast compare do or done which sounds good one last um, consequence of the gospel it crushes our accusations look at verse 31 do we then overthrow the law by its by this faith by no means on the contrary we uphold the law Now, if you back up from this and get big picture, you can look at this thing and go, "Well, no, wait a minute, something's confusing here. I'm hearing about grace, and I'm hearing about freedom, right? I'm hearing about all this stuff that sounds really good to me, but I've also heard what God said about doing things. I've heard about law, and I've heard about his commands. I've heard those things, and he could be accused at this point of being inconsistent, or or, or he could be accused at some point, I guess, if we're not careful of... of, uh, Changing the rules mid-game or double-talk. Or as Paul says here, the accusation that somehow God's law is worthless now because we got grace. Is that what's happening? Because after all, in verse 21, he says that we are justified apart from the law. So couldn't it be said by somebody paying attention? Like, listen, then the law is pointless. The law was just, I guess, just like a an exposing kind of a thing. But God isn't keeping that standard anymore, so the law has nothing to do with us. Let me let me change your perspective because that's what Paul's trying to do with the church because that's what happens when people hear grace. Isn't that true? If we preach grace clearly enough, you're offended by it and you wonder how people will abuse it. <laughs> like that can't be the case. And so Paul brings this up to declare that the law was completely and fully met in Jesus for our salvation. Not one jot and tittle of God's standard was compromised. There wasn't anything about forgetting the law. God established the law completely in Jesus and the cross. He established it by showing that the law is high and it's holy and you and I cannot do it. God never changed his standard. He looks at us and says, not one good thing can you do. No one. You're all guilty, like filthy rags guilty. Your righteous deeds, are horrible to me God didn't lower his standard he says we're all guilty he doesn't grade on a curve he takes all sin seriously and he establishes his law this way like in Genesis chapter 2 when he takes uh, Adam and Eve who were free at one point in time out into the garden says hey have fun knock yourselves out but see that tree that tree of the knowledge of good and evil just don't go there because if you go there you're gonna die and God was establishing a principle Rebellion against God equals death. Not physical death only, but eternal separation from God. God is going away, okay? And what happened? They did, and we inherit. And every person who's ever lived from the very first man and woman now has this tendency of rebellion against God, and we're all guilty. So if God is going to never mind in the law, that means that death wouldn't be a sentence, but he carried out that sentence in Jesus, right? Right? And somehow, and I know how, because he was the perfect sacrifice. He was without blemish. And his death really did satisfy God for all of our sins. Not just everybody in this room, but everybody in the room to come at 11. And everybody who was here 10 years ago. And everybody who's on the other side of the planet in Morocco right now. Every person who puts their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus bore that punishment. And God kept his standard. There's one other aspect of of how God doesn't compromise on the law, and that is that he shows that the righteous standard of his holiness is completely met in Christ. We find in Leviticus God saying something like this, and Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 1. Here's the standard. You ready? (laughs) Be holy. How's that feel? Anybody like that one? I hate that one. I'm not close, not even a little bit. I can barely spell holy, okay? The standard is so far, I can't see it. Absolute, perfect, motivated obedience. That's the standard. And is God just compromising and saying, listen, I'll forgive you, now go ahead and act like chucklehead and you'll get heaven someday. That's not what he said. I require perfect obedience. Guess where we get that? Imputed righteousness. Righteousness. Here is Jesus, our Savior, who lived everything perfectly. He was the only person ever who was holy. And God was able to take his holiness and apply it to all believers. Every one of us bear the robe of Christ's righteousness. So God no longer sees us as the knuckleheads we are. He sees us as perfect and righteous. Is your brain doing this to you? Should. It should be just blowing up in your head because that's amazing. Amazing righteousness supplied, imputed righteousness. And so God keeps his standards. So when people accuse God of going, well, wait a minute, this grace thing is completely different than this law thing. Does God go, no, it's the only way for you to obey it. It's the only way for you to get there is if I give it to you. Amen, amen. So maybe you came here today not anticipating a discussion about consequences of good news because <laughs> that's kind of a play on words. But I wanna suggest to you today that... that uh, God is so faithful for this truth of grace alone to sinners who don't deserve it and don't even recognize it that he will not be competed with. So when we want to offer him some kind of external, behavioral, like personal righteousness apart from Christ, he's gonna devastate it. When we suggest that there's more ways out there that get to the same place called God and they're all dead ends that lead to hell and he's gonna devastate it and we pull out your options. If we make some accusation against God that says, God, somehow this holy standard isn't really important to you anymore because after all, we live by grace. And he says, no, 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 no. I've completed it in Jesus Christ. That's why he can say it's finished because if he didn't finish it in Christ, we're still working, people. Get it? Say yes, amen, anything? Okay, thank you. Affirmation's always good. (laughs) This kind of devastation we need to have our pride crushed, our distractions crushed, our wandering hearts crushed by the wonderful, inviting, magnetic gospel of Jesus. So what does that do to you? I hope your mind's going, okay, here's what it does. What does it do to you? I think, let me suggest some thoughts. I think joy should be an outcome. I think if you're a trust, a, a follower of Christ and you've experienced this wonderful God-given gospel, I don't care what your circumstances are. I really don't. I mean, I do, but joy, supernatural joy should be your, your attitude. I think, I think one of the outcomes is hope. We can't be crushed, church. We can't be crushed and it can't be taken away. No one can separate us from the faithful love of Jesus. Amen? I think freedom. Some of you are trapped in religion and some of you are trapped in performance and trapped pleasing your husband or pleasing your wife. You're trapped. And so you can't walk in the freedom that Jesus and the gospel provides. And I suggest to you that freedom is how you should walk. Free from all these things. And I guarantee you if you walk free, you'll walk in love. I think worship. I think worship's an outcome to getting this gospel. Like, you should, not, not just singing songs, that's, that's cool, worship is life, and you, you're gonna walk out of here going, can you believe that? Can you believe it? You should never get tired of the gospel. You should never, ever go, got that, move on. This is it. This is the story. This is why we gather, church. So, I think you should leave here with peace. Relax. Settle down. You, you might have all sorts of problems and issues. Got it. They might hurt you and hurt other people between here and the kingdom of God. But God's done, doing and done a good work, amen? It's finished. I gotta address one other group and then we're done. You might be sitting here today and by your own, own assessment, you would say, well, I'm not necessarily all in with Jesus. And I, I really do scratch my head on this one. I, I just gotta ask why. Why would you go it alone? Why would you risk the possibility that this holy God really does care about sin and you know you can 't do it you can't you can 't perform good enough. Why, w- why would you go it alone and and every every unbeliever I ever talked to has this predominant demeanor they 're exhausted they 're exhausted from trying or not trying they 're exhausted from the self perpetuated problems and hurts that they've caused themselves and other people. They're just sick and tired and they don't have a solution. Can I suggest you to come to Christ? If you want it to be finished, if you want the sin that separates you from God and and, and the sin that you do that hurts yourself and other people to come to an end, then come to Jesus, who, white, doors wide open, accepts all who come to him. There isn't any sin or behavior, no ongoing problem that is greater than God's ability to forgive. Amen? Amen. 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 All right, church, let's pray together and thank God for this wonderful gospel. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for his finished and completed work, his righteousness applied to us, your children. God, I thank you for the work that you have started and you promised to finish in all of us. God, I pray that we do leave here with peace and freedom and hope and worship, and joy. We can because of Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless.